This is Bias Bender, and I'm Kayla Stokes. Welcome to our second episode of this podcast where we look into the lives of Black women from the past and the present in order to imagine the future. This week's episode is about the life and legacy of Septima Clark. I've been thinking a lot about our schools and teachers, especially as we're getting to the back-to-school season. I've graduated from college, and I'm not quite at the point of wanting to head back to a formal education, so I'm not in the midst of trying to figure out education during a pandemic, but I imagine it must be such a difficult struggle for both families with students and educators. I've also been thinking a lot about how I was educated to see the world from a young age. With the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement this year, I've been thinking deeply about how the education I received was seldom from a vantage point that felt similar to my own experience. So I have all this rattling around in my head, and then in looking for a subject for this episode, I came across Septima Clark. Ms. Clark has a tremendous story centered around education and empowerment. I'm bummed I didn't know more about her until now, but I'm so grateful and excited to dig into her life and accomplishments. I think this episode might only scratch the surface of her story, but that's the least I can do to learn more about her and pass her story along. So let's just get right into it. Septima Poinsett Clark was born May 3rd, 1898 in Charleston, South Carolina. I have such a soft spot in my heart for Charleston. Growing up, my grandparents and I would travel down south during the summers, and Charleston was always my favorite stop. The Spanish moss covered trees, and sweet, hot air felt like a hug for this northern kid. For me, Charleston meant food and history, as I have quite a lot of family roots that grow deep into its soil. So, seeing that Septima's story also begins in Charleston made me smile. Ms. Clark was brought up in Charleston by her mother and father, Victoria and Peter Poinsett. From an early age, her parents instilled in her the importance of education as a tool for betterment. Her own father was born into slavery in South Carolina, and while he recounted his time as a slave mostly consisting of taking the plantation owner's children back and forth to school, he was only allowed to learn how to sign his name once he was free and needing to sign his own checks. Her mother was born a free woman in Haiti, When she arrived in Charleston, she refused to dote on the needs of white families as the other black women did in order to earn money. She opted instead to wash clothing to make a living. Because of their experiences, Septima's parents made sure that their children got the education they knew they would need to operate in the world. Septima attended public schools until she got to the high school level. At that point, she enrolled in the Avery Normal Institute. Avery was a private school in Charleston founded by the Northern-based American Missionary Association during the Reconstruction era. It was the first accredited secondary school for black students in Charleston. Unlike her classmates, who were generally from families with more resource, Septima worked as a nanny to pay her way through her high school education. Upon graduating in 1916, at the age of 18, Septima had the equivalent of two years of college training from Avery, and she was able to start her teaching career thanks to Avery's robust teacher training. Her first classroom experience was on nearby John's Island. I love that Septima's work has its roots planted on John's Island. First of all, it's a beautiful place with a lot of really amazing old trees. If you have the opportunity to visit, I highly recommend it. You might know it as the backdrop to parts of the Netflix show Outer Banks, (laughs) or a scenic place to buy a vacation home. But for a lot of Black, specifically Gullah folks, it has been home for many generations. 
I think it's kind of magical that Septima stepped into her role of teacher for the first time on this island. It was home to rebellions and such a rich history of Black Gullah culture. I definitely can't speak for Septima, but I know the feeling of being surrounded by the sense of ancestral weight, and I can only imagine this feeling might have been involved in Septima's long relationship with the island. Septima entered classrooms that were occupied by Black students on John's Island who had very specific needs. At that time, the Black Islanders mainly spoke Gullah. Gullah is a language that consists of aspects preserved from a variety of Western African languages combined with English influences. It's sing-songy and warm and immediately reminds me of the Low Country. While Reconstruction afforded the Black population with land and the opportunity to grow self-sufficiency, the reality of white farming regulators, combined with the lack of educational resources tailored to these folks, led to a lot of Black Islanders being taken advantage of by the systems in which they had to operate. So, by the early 20th century, when Septima began teaching on John's Island, she saw a lot of illiteracy and lack of tools to navigate the white-dominated world surrounding the community. What she didn't see was a lack of intelligence, purpose, and drive. The Gullah people on the island have a rich oral history and a strong sense of belonging with one another. Luckily, Septima already knew some Gullah and had a respect for the John's Island population. She took the teaching approach of meeting her students where they were and teaching to the specific needs of her students by learning and appreciating the community. Not only was she able to partner with the community in their children's education, but she was also able to teach these children to read and write in standard American English and Gullah simultaneously. This experience would serve as her base for teaching in the future. After three years on John's Island, Septima returned to Charleston to teach at Avery. Still so early on in her teaching career, Septima fostered even more skills that she would engage in her lifelong activism pursuits. She campaigned door-to-door asking Black families if they wanted their children taught by Black teachers. She launched this campaign along with her students and the NAACP, in response to the lawmakers of Charleston continuing to uphold an ordinance that drastically excluded black teachers from teaching in the city's public schools. The city's official stance was insisting that black people preferred white or mixed-race teachers to teach their children. By 1920, Septima and her team collected the signatures needed from black families to get black teachers in the classroom with black students. (laughs) For the following three decades, she continued teaching in the public schools of Charleston and Columbia, South Carolina. While teaching, Septima earned her bachelor's degree in 1942 from Benedict College with a concentration in elementary education, and subsequently her Master of Arts degree from Hampton Institute in 1946. All the while, Septima kept up her work with the NAACP. In 1945, she worked with Thurgood Marshall on a case that ensured equal pay for both black and white teachers. When they won the case, her pay nearly tripled. However, things shifted in 1956 when the state made it illegal for public employees to be part of civil rights groups. Instead of hiding her affiliation with the NAACP or leaving her efforts behind, Septima decided it was time to stop teaching in Charleston and move forward. Her next stop was a full-time position with the Highlander Folk School. Highlander was founded by Miles Horton in 1932 in the hills of Tennessee. 
In its early years, it was a labor and adult education center, but by the time Septima became involved with the school in the 50s, it had become an exceptional hub for racial justice work. It was this incredible place that fostered interracial community all in the name of education and organizing. Workshops and classes that started at Highlander led to some of the most profound leadership of the civil rights movement. For example, we hear so much about Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat after a long day of work. However, if you look at the months leading up to that orchestrated moment, Parks was sitting in a workshop led by none other than Septima Clark herself at Highlander. So Highlander became Septima's new headquarters for change. She taught workshops and trained organizers at a grassroots level in Tennessee while traveling all over the country. During this time, she developed the concept and details for her citizenship schools. The citizenship schools were a seemingly small idea that led to groundbreaking change. Septima and her team of Highlander cohorts would start in a black community of the South and teach illiterate folks how to read and write so that they could register to vote. In the Jim Crow South, a powerful tool of voter suppression was not allowing people to vote unless they could pass a literacy test. So, if you could teach a population to read and write, you could teach that population to vote and have a voice in their government. The first citizenship schools were started on John's Island, the island that started Septima's teaching career. When the team of teachers from Highlander arrived in 1957, they used the same principles Septima used when she first began teaching on the island decades ago. While their goals of literacy were the catalyst, each class began by asking a room full of local adults what they wanted to learn. From there, students would not only learn how to read and write using their local voter registration information, but also learn skills that would help the Black residents learn how to navigate the purposefully difficult requirements of citizenship in the Jim Crow South. Folks who spent time at the citizenship schools could learn about their legal rights, financial and property management, and the importance of participating in civil rights action. One makeshift school on John's Island turned into many more as both the teachers and students, who were predominantly women on both sides, learned that their work was making meaningful change. By 1961, there were 37 schools on neighboring islands and back in mainland Charleston. The beautiful thing about the system of schooling was that the students went on to be trained as teachers for the next group. This was an important aspect of the program because it gave adult learners an immense sense of responsibility and confidence, while also further integrating the specific experiences of community members into the teaching. At the end of the day, who knows a population better than the population itself? The same year that the citizenship schools numbered close to 40, Tennessee forced the Highlander Folk School to shut down. Fortunately, this didn't stop Septima and this educational movement. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, took over swiftly and established the citizenship education program in order to pick up where Highlander had to stop. Septima moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and became SCLC's Director of Teaching and Education. In many ways, she became even busier at this point as she traveled all over the country recruiting community members to come learn how to teach the program in their own cities and towns. Septima went on to run this program and work for SCLC for almost another decade. During these years, the civil rights movement found its peak. Septima worked alongside the leaders who we are most familiar with, including Martin Luther King Jr., 
She helped anchor the relatively young movement well into her 70s. Ironically, the FBI dismissed her as being too old to be dangerous. <laughs> Little did they realize she was organizing a whole generation of voters to fight for their rights through over 800 citizenship schools she worked to create. But, you know, that's okay. <laughs> After retiring from SCLC in 1970, Septima continued holding workshops for the American Field Service. In 1975, in a twist of fate, Septima was elected to the Charleston, South Carolina School Board, almost 20 years after being fired from the district for standing up for what she believed in. In fact, the following year, her pension was reinstated by the governor of South Carolina, who publicly declared that her firing was unjust. At the age of 77, Septima Clark was able to receive this sliver of justice and recognition. I love when a woman can live to see her efforts applauded. Septima Clark is luckily among this group. She was awarded the Living Legacy Award from Jimmy Carter in 1979. She wrote two autobiographies and had numerous books written about her, and now we know about her too. Septima passed away on John's Island at the age of 89 on December 15, 1987. She paved the way for so many black folks, especially women, to use education as a tool for change. I'm grateful to know about her impact and to be reminded of the possibilities that come from believing in everyone's potential for greatness, especially those who have been historically underestimated. So now that we know about the journey Septima took as an educator, I'm so excited to talk with Kimberly Eckert. Let me brag on behalf of Kim for a minute to let you know that she's not only an exceptional educator who I think shares some of the most important principles that we just heard from Septima's work, but she's also the 2018 Louisiana Teacher of the Year, a 2019 NEA Social Justice Activist of the Year National Finalist, and a 2020 Global Teacher Prize Finalist. So I, I just really have a few questions about um, your path with education and, you know, what you try and take into the classroom, because um, as you know, I'm, I'm doing an episode about Septima Clark, so, you know, we're talking all about education this week, and I thought it would be great to get in touch with a real-life teacher. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, so I, I'll just start off with asking you if you could just tell me a bit about your journey as an educator and what first led you to wanting to teach. Well, okay. Um, I wonder how far back we should really go. <laughs> so, okay. Um, well, I really should start off. So I'm from Louisiana. You probably already know that. And my parents uh, didn't finish high school. And... Um, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I, I mean, I loved school, and school did so many things for me. It was such, like, a, a place of empowerment for me. But every time I said I wanted to be a teacher, like, teachers and other people would discourage me. They're like, you know, you made it this far. You really need to aim bigger. Don't be a teacher. You're going to waste all your talent. Like, you really have a chance to leave Marksville and do big things. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so um, I became a social worker instead. Because um, at the end of the day, I still wanted to empower people. That was the experience that I had had um, for a million reasons. And whenever I graduated and I was doing some practice, I worked a lot with people with disabilities and with mental health issues. And I worked in schools a lot. And I just felt like I could make a way bigger impact faster 
if I was a classroom teacher, like I was envious of the teachers that got to actually have these kids all day long. And I just thought like, what would it be like if, if before you stopped believing that you, that you had like so many opportunities for impact and that you really could, could be whoever you want. Like what, what would happen if I got to you before, like the world has already shut you out. So I went back to school and I um, became a teacher. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The end. <laughs> and um, this is a big question, but <laughs> what do you believe is the most important thing to keep in mind as an educator when you step into that classroom full of kids? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Okay. The most important thing. Hmm. Oops, sorry. Gosh, I've got so many truths that swirl in my head every day. Hmm. Um, the first thing I try to keep in mind is what education actually could be and should be. Um, because, like, we're not the only teachers in a kid's life. And I think that education should be centered around the human beings that are in that class in that time. Um, and all focus should be on what will make this human being thrive in in the world. And I just... I feel like sometimes we get bogged down in this past that's really toxic for students, um, you know, and I just feel like the first thing we need to remember is, like, it, it should all revolve. Like, we don't need to make students fit into something that, that we think or that we are comfortable with. We need to help them find their own fit and find their own place so that they can have an impact. And I really believe that that's just the, the truth of what, you know, every classroom needs to be able to do. Like, for me, the last thing I'm doing whenever I'm in that classroom is thinking about, um, you know, nouns and verbs that comes with it. Like my content is the vehicle, but there's no passenger if I'm not making sure that like the students are, are coming along with me. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and in that journey of trying to meet your students where they are, what do you find is the most difficult part of that? Um, okay. Reality sometimes. So, okay, let's see. Let me see what kind of mood Kim is in today. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, like, we always talk about how, like, we, you know, like, you know, like, especially these pushes when we, we speak about, like, SEL and, and these experiences, and all these things are real, even if we didn't know the jargon for it. People have been doing this for a really long time, like, the best teachers. Um, and we have this myth of like, you know, we're going to teach them to be human in our classroom. But the truth is, is that sometimes humans think bad things and aren't very nice. <laughs> like we forget <laughs> that being mean and racist and um, uh, like condescending and like self-aggrandizing. These are also human traits. <laughs> mm-hmm. So sometimes reality is difficult because it's like. For example, I mean, I, I teach and I live in the deep south, right? Right. Sometimes, um, you know, a lot of what students carry are things that they hear all around them from the media, from the community. And so it doesn't mean that they're coming to school, like, ready to just be their best self or, you know what I mean, or like to kind of take off racism and all these things. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. So sometimes... Um, it's it's a, a balance where it's just like, how can I expose you to enough of other people's truths where you start to see that there's space for theirs and yours? 
And that is really, um, that has always been a very difficult thing um, to help people and to make sure that I'm not like inserting me um, rather like how to think their way through uh, like the best them and the best them isn't necessarily digging into like <laughs> behaviors that are not so great as humans. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> oh, yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so I then, sleep much during the school year, <laughs> oh. and also um, they need to learn content. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it's hard, and I'm, a, and I'm I'm obviously a black teacher, and having to understand, like you know, even students who say things that hurt me as a person, they're still my babies. They're still my students. Mm. Um, and I'm at a place you know, I'm more mature in my profession as well. And I'm able to kind of move these things around and it's never failed me. I always, um, by the end of a school year, do all the things that I set out to do. Um, even if it doesn't feel like it immediately. So now I'm just kind of rambling, but I had a really tough year, like four years ago. Um, it was never Alton Sterling was murdered about 10 miles from where, um, we live in my school. And in the following weekend, like, officers were murdered also and it was really tough knowing that I was going to enter a school year and knowing that I teach a classroom from anti-bias instruction and um, an inclusive space like my students know that and they're aware of that and I'm like oh my gosh how am I even going to touch this and feelings are running so high and what's funny that was the most difficult year and having to plan and support and attend to the needs of every student every student, not just students of color, but also students whose, you know, you know, families believe very different things about human rights than I do. (laughs) Um, And also, you know, all the students like might have parents who are in law enforcement and couldn't really sift through. And then, you know, um, the Colin Kaepernick protests, it all just kind of bubbled. And what was beautiful about that year, I really needed therapy after that year, but these same students have been doing like beautiful um, work around social justice in the past few months, and it, some of the students have surprised me the most. Um, who it just, it, I had to lay a very delicate groundwork for them as fourteen-year-olds, but as eighteen and nineteen-year-olds, I was fun. Like it's really cool to be able to see a turnaround and not much of an emotional investment, and it was really great. Wow. So going off of that, my next question is. Um, what has brought you the most joy or hope as a teacher? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, I think if you ask any teacher this, you'll get much the same. It's all hope. I, I just can't even imagine. Cause you asked what, what has brought me the most joy or what's brought me the most hope? Uh, either pick your, pick your adventure. I might've, I might've made that part up. Okay. So like, this is like the coolest work ever. I, 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 there's really nothing else I can say about it. Um, I can't like every day. I can't believe that it's me that I get to take part in this like precious space in a human being's life. Whenever they're deciding so many things and becoming so many things and carrying so many things. And like, I know how much the world needs them. And, like, I get to help them see that. And I just feel like a cool sidekick, like, helping somebody on their, like, journey. It's, it's crazy. It's, like, it's so crazy. And it's why, like, no matter what my job is, 
I refuse to leave the classroom ever. So, like, right now I'm down to two hours a day. Last year it was four hours a day. I'm never going to stop because it, it really is a rush. It's just joyful to be around human beings at that level and create these really trusting environments. Um, and they, man, they're just freaking awesome. And they teach me so much. It's, yeah, it's hard to describe. Mm. <laughs> it's really sure. cool, though. I strongly recommend it. You should be a teacher. Okay, maybe. <laughs> I'll work on you. It's really cool. Um, and then my, my very last question is um, also kind of a big question, but uh, what does the power of education mean to you? Oh, my gosh. The power of education. Man. So powerful. <sighs> like enlightenment and choice. Like there are so many ways that we can navigate this world and this space and this one life we've got. And with education, we're able to navigate it with so many different paths and so many opportunities to feel empowered. Like we're not a victim of this life, but a player in it. And without education, it's impossible to even know what that feels like. And my heart hurts for people who like just kind of walk every single day and, and haven't had people investing in their learning. And like, I just feel like the, the world is, and, I, and I've been that person before. Like I know what that feels like. And I know what that feels like to come from a long line of family that's been like just disenfranchised where every day is a struggle just to wake up and make it to the end of the day. And I just feel like being able to have choice and a feeling like, again, like you have power that's such a wonderful gift to give someone. Um, and then it just becomes a place where they don't need it to be given anymore. They can take it. And so I feel like I teach my kids how to learn because I can't possibly teach them everything. And maybe that's what an education needs to be. Like, how can you learn and take everything you need so that you are the, you are the most powerful player in your space and you're not getting played by the space. And that feels like an incredibly appropriate place to leave off this episode. Life can be difficult and unfair, but I'm encouraged by the Black female educators who have dedicated so much time and effort into shepherding folks towards that enlightenment and choice that we all deserve. The sources I use to research this episode are as follows. Freedom's Teacher, The Life of Septima Clark by Catherine Mellon Sharon. Voices from the Southern Oral History Program, I Train People to Do Their Own Talking, Septima Clark and Women in the Civil Rights Movement, from interviews by Jacqueline Dowd Hall and Eugene P. Walker, compiled by Catherine Mellon Sharon and David P. Klein. Septima points at Clark's literacy and teaching approaches for linguistic acquisition and literacy development for Gullah-speaking children, 1916-1919, by Karen A. Johnson in African American Women Educators. Michael Dimmick's dissertation, Embodied Placemaking as a Rhetoric of Citizenship on Johns Island, South Carolina. T. Morgan Dixon and Vanessa Garrison's TED Talk. South Carolina ETV's video on Septima Clark. The Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University's article on Septima Clark. SNCC Digital's page on Septima Clark. The Embassy of the Republic of Haiti's page on Septima Clark. College of Charleston Avery Research Center and Biography.com's Septima Clark article. 
And thank you so much to Kim Eckert for chatting with me.